This episode is brought to you by Appeal, helping you enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. I believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today... We're going to talk about predictions. Um, I happened upon a very interesting piece uh, written by my guest today, uh, Claire Brown, who is a senior staff writer for The Counter. Uh, She's also been published in The Atlantic, The Guardian, and The Intercept. Um, She's definitely worth following. And this particular piece, which was published on uh, the 12th of November, um, kind of went through a list of Trump policies uh, that have gutted food and farm protections. Um, and I wanted uh, I wanted to have her recap that list for you, and then we'll kind of go through the different points um, through the program and expand on why she thinks she and her colleagues think they they could conceivably be rolled back, um, and whose interests are at stake uh, if they are or not. So, um, Claire, first of all, welcome to the show. It's so nice to have you on. Um, I'm such a big fan of the counter. I I, I should have more of you uh, writers on more often, and and hopefully this will be the beginning of a new era for me. Um, so thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much so, for having um, me. So tell me, tell us, I just don't, not tell me, but tell us, as in my listeners, um, what what was the list of policies uh, that you and your colleagues identified that you felt uh, were most likely going to be challenged, at least by the Biden administration? Well, we came up with a giant Google document, and the idea behind the ones we selected was that we wanted to look at the policies that Biden could roll back even if the Republicans maintain control of Congress. So we were very interested in the rules that the Trump administration made through the rulemaking process or through executive action that wouldn't require congressional approval to kind of turn around. And so what we came across were lots and lots of changes to the SNAP program that collectively would have shed millions of people from the program. Um, We also looked at Trump's legacy with school lunches, which if you you might remember, um, Michelle Obama's signature policy was getting a um, school lunch overhaul passed. Um, We also looked at um, Trump's record with uh, monuments, with water quality, and with pesticides. And we assembled a list of the things Biden could roll back kind of without a whole lot of effort or without a whole lot of congressional buy-in. Mm-hmm. Great. So let's let's dig into um, the SNAP benefits. You know, they've been threatening to reduce SNAP benefits over the course of the last four years. Um, 
But uh, especially in light of the current economic crisis and the hundreds of thousands of people who have newly enrolled in SNAP, um, what do you think the chances are of uh, Congress continuing down the path of rolling back SNAP benefits? Or do you think Biden is going to succeed in uh, strong arming them into not only uh, extending, but expanding SNAP benefits? So one thing that's been interesting is that the Trump administration in 2019 um, rolled out three different rules that would each have an impact on SNAP rolls. And they were all these kind of tiny changes to eligibility that collectively had a really big impact on um, the number of people who could enroll. Um, They get very wonky, but it's as minute as changing the boundaries of a region that would qualify for a waiver for a work requirement. And so it's it's very kind of academic, the, uh, the actual rules themselves. But interestingly, what happened is that none of them have gone into effect. One was struck down by a federal judge at the beginning of the pandemic because of the pandemic, and then later struck down more permanently. And the other two went into the comment process and then as of today, the USDA has not published the final rule. So actually, as it stands, none of the Trump administration's SNAP rollbacks have actually gone through. Now, that could still change in time for inauguration, but I found that yeah. kind of interesting because we had been doing so much reporting on the SNAP program and on these rollbacks. And, and um, it's it's funny to think that some of them may never see the light of day. Well, isn't that a blessing? <laughs> At least one good thing that he has, you know, failed to accomplish uh, in his tenure. Yeah. But, it, you know, I do worry that if a Republican majority maintains in the Senate that uh, SNAP is still going to see some significant changes. But, you know, we'll see and we'll see what happens with the USDA. Um, what about the... Um, <clears throat> What about the nutrition standards in school meals? Because the the USDA has been trying to roll those back, and and what are they proposing instead? They're they're saying that kids need less healthy food and more junk food. Is that is that sort of what that's about? Um, you know, it's like why 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 is it that we don't? And I know this is just a general question, but this is why I need an outline because I got to I'll just go on and on about stuff. But but you know, the idea that we don't invest an enormous amount of money into nutrition for school children is just mind blowing to me. I think we're the only, you know, developed nation in the world that provides school food that does not consider uh, the nutritional value absolutely of paramount importance. So, so who's going to, who's going to benefit if those nutritional standards are rolled back? So, what the the specifics of the nutritional standards that have come under the most fire are salt reduction targets, mm-hmm. are whole grain requirements, are um, the amount of fat that can be in milk, and then the types of vegetables that actually count as vegetables. So these are all kinds of reforms that were meant to kind of bring school lunches away from french fries away from burgers away from white burger buns um and the usda um initially planned just to get rid of the salt requirement and um, reduce the whole grain requirements and some of that push actually came from um essentially a a group of lunch ladies um they're the national school lunch association i believe is what they called um basically said 
kids aren't eating these healthier foods and we would be better off if we just loosen these restrictions a little bit. Now, a lot of critics have said opening, uh, reducing these restrictions just opens the door for processed food, specifically, you know, processed junk food like you find in vending machines or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, personal pizzas to come back into schools. Um, But again, they really have not gone into effect in the way we would have expected. One of them was struck down by a federal judge. The other one has not gone into effect yet. So it's a little bit of the same story where it's there's been a lot of press around these nutrition rollbacks, but we haven't seen a whole lot on the ground yet. Hmm. I mean, I just to go on for a second about school food. I mean, I I'm also uh, sort of dumbfounded. Um, even though I put my kid through the public school system and I have to say that when she was, you know, offered the opportunity to eat school lunch, she would literally weep. Um, I'm not joking. Like, please don't expect me to eat that. And I won't eat that. So, um, and that was a New York city public school lunch during the Obama administration. Um, so the lunches were not, didn't get a whole lot better. I will say, uh, from the point of view of, kids wanting to eat them. And, and I think there's also the stigma of school lunch uh, being, you know, something that only the poor kids or the brown kids or the black kids or, you know, like the disadvantaged kids, like that's something that they have to do. So there's, I feel like there needs to be some kind of an educational process and also sort of a mandatory, you know, across the board school lunch thing. I wonder if you've come across any, um, you know, commentary on where what parents think about school lunch and whether there are large groups of parents who are advocating for better, better lunches in their school system, or are they kind of like me? I was completely, you know, like, well, okay, you're not going to eat it. I'm not going to make you. So I guess I'll just keep making your bag lunches. Do you have any sense of what the pulse on from parents is on this issue? Yeah, I think there are certainly lots of parents who are interested in making school lunch better. Um, the impression that I've gotten just from reporting over the years is that it's really, really hard to make those changes because there's just not very much federal and state funding for school meals. So, you know, when you only have 30 cents to spend on a lunch and you have to feed it to a thousand kids, it's just really hard to make that nutritious and delicious and plentiful. They have, you know, Rightfully so. I think they have some pretty rigid um, regulations in terms of what has to be included. You know, they have to offer vegetables or fruits at every breakfast. They have to offer vegetables at every lunch. And I think the margins are just really, really slim. And I think it's pretty hard to get good quality food. I think there's also a lot of restrictions on how they can source that food. Um, Mm -hmm. I can remember um, in college there... um, there was a, a kind of a new movement of um, of gardens growing at schools, but in many cases they could not serve the food grown at the school farm in the school because of the um, quality standards that the um, cafeteria, um, the safety standards that the cafeteria had put in place. Um, and that was a statewide rule, not just a school-wide rule. So there's a whole lot of barriers. And I think, you know, parents are really concerned, but the opt-out is relatively straightforward when it comes to school lunch. You just make your kids lunch. Um, and so it's it's a very, very hairy issue that I think requires a lot, a lot of commitment that not necessarily any one PTA could figure out in a couple of school years. 
Right. And most importantly, it requires significant financial investment. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I think we all know the story about how, you know, in the 70s, 80s and 90s, they dismantled every school kitchen and all they have are, you know, deck ovens and, and uh, you know, friolators and they don't have the equipment and nobody has the knowledge. And there are relatively few of the quote unquote lunch ladies uh, of certainly my era um, when I was growing up. I'm a boomer. So, um, you know, the food was disgusting. I'm not going <laughs> to. It was made right there on the ranch. But I'm telling you, it was, you know, we called it, you know, elephant scabs and shit on a shingle. And I mean, it was like, you know, and, it was, there was, and, and by the way, there was no I mean, I guess we had boiled vegetables. I do remember the smell of broccoli and cabbage haunt me to this day. Um, but <laughs> but there was, in fact, a salad bar, you know, like anyway. I, I won't waste any more time on this topic, but it, it it's it's a big lift, and it it just amazes me that um, neither parents nor PTAs nor uh, congressional uh, leadership has been able to sort of crack the case on producing uh, nutritious, fairly delicious, vaguely delicious, palatable. Um, school lunches for, you know, so many of the kids who are uh, going hungry right now in our country. So very disturbing. I hope Biden gets a handle on that. Anyway, let's let's move on to the um, to your uh, entry about the Waters of the United States Act, which was an Obama administration ruling, which at the time and, you know, remained throughout his presidency, extraordinarily controversial um, with pretty much most farmers, certainly most that I spoke with, even those who, uh, you know, might have been um, more inclined towards conservation and stewardship and so on, but still just felt that the intrusion of the government into the, you know, gullies and rivulets running across their farm was more than they could possibly bear. So what what does the, um, what, what would, describe for us the difference between what the Waters of the United States Act uh, offered in terms of protections versus the new rule uh, known as the Navigable Waters Protection Rule. Yeah, so the Waters of the United States Act, it's important to note, never actually went into effect. It kind of got stalled before it ever um, took effect and then was just rolled back by the Trump administration after mm-hmm. it was already caught up in court. Now, the Obama EPA always said and continued to say this after they left office, they would always say it actually would have regulated very, very few um, ditches and streams that the farm community was so worried about. It had a lot more to do with other sources of pollution. That said, with the Trump administration, basically what the Waters of the United States rule did was define the waters that fell under federal regulation. What the Navigable Waters Protection Rule does is basically adjust that definition, and it takes about 50% of the nation's wetlands and 20% of streams and rivers out back out of that definition. So it basically um, says you know, these are under state rule. Um, states are responsible for um, regulating runoff, for regulating anything that's going to go in there. Um, and, and this was something that the industry was really happy about. Um, and, and something that I think will be pretty difficult to reverse, though the Biden administration has pledged to tackle water pollution. Hmm. Well, 
they're going to have to do something. I mean, the, the dead zone in the Gulf is, is growing by leaps and bounds. And the, the amount of potable water left in farm country is really vanishingly small. I mean, there, I'm sure you've reported on this, Claire. I know the counter has, um, uh, you know, the, the number of small towns uh, whose wastewater treatment plants are not up to the task of extracting all of the uh, nutrient runoff from the agricultural enterprises surrounding those towns uh, to the point where citizens are obliged to buy their drinking water and uh, buy the water in which they, you know, cook their food and brush their teeth, um, you know, because they just don't have the tax base to set up a wastewater treatment facility that is capable of filtering out all of those agrochemicals. And, I, you know, I don't see that changing anytime soon. So I, I really hope the uh, at Biden administration uh, goes to bat for this in a big way, because even though many of these towns are, you know, sort of indifferent to the fact that they can't drink the water, uh, that's not a long-term solution, having bottled water as your go-to, in my opinion. So um, I, I, I guess we'll move on, but we're going to take a short break uh, and have a quick sponsor drop. I'm going to clap my hands and then we'll be right back uh, with more of Claire Brown from the counter to talk about what we can look forward to in the Biden administration. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at Heritage Radio Network, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. A peel works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. A peel helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal. Food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. And uh, back we are from a sponsor drop. And thank you to my sponsor, um, Claire Brown. Uh, Claire Brown has joined me today to talk about uh, what the Biden administration is likely to be able to um, fix <laughs> or mitigate uh, from Trump administration um, what do, I don't know what to call it. Depredations, I think, is the word. Um, so there was a lot. There was a lot of talk when when Trump first came into uh, the uh, office. He one of the first things he did was to open logging or to shrink Bears Ears National Preserve or as a park. Was it called a national park? I don't remember. Um, but it was. It got a lot of con. That, that one single act uh, got a lot of flack. Uh, not that it changed anything. And um, and now they are uh, opening up the uh, Tongass um, Preserve in Alaska to logging. Uh, and other uh, federal lands have been uh, targeted for oil and gas leases and so on. Um, and many of these, uh, many of these uh, preserves obviously uh, are deeply um, connected to American, uh, Native American, Indian tribal lands. And uh, and there has been um, 
some pushback uh, to try to roll these things back um, because of the impact on uh, Native American foodways, among other things. Um, what, how much can the Biden administration uh, roll back uh, things like the shrinking of bear's ears or, or shutting down uh, the uh, timber industry in the Tongass forest? Is that a done deal? Are we stuck with that? Well, Biden has said that this is a priority. He said that he will issue an executive order on day one to conserve 30% of American lands and waters, part of an, part of an effort, as what he said, to reverse the Trump administration's assault, assaults on America's national treasures. That's a quote. He specifically said he would work on bear's ears with that. Um, but places like Tongass will require a little bit more effort. He'll have to go through a rulemaking process. He'll probably have to get Alaskan politicians on board. So some of these things will not happen overnight. But he has said that it's a priority and we have no indication to the contrary. We'll, we'll, we'll understand a lot more about this administration's priorities, I think, when the cabinet is announced tomorrow and we start to get a little bit more of a sense of who he's putting in these key positions. Mm. Yeah, the all-important position of the EPA. Uh, you know, I, I haven't even heard any speculation on who might be taking that over. Have you? No, we've heard a couple of names float around for Ag Secretary, but again, mm -hmm. we, we really have no idea who's been chosen. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about Heidi Heitkamp, uh, who I think would be a disaster. Um, it also is very troubling to me that Tom Vilsack is uh, in Biden's ear in terms of, um, you know, who to select for, for the USDA. I, 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 I don't view him with any favor, uh, despite his, you know, the first term when he had Kathleen Merrigan and they launched the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food uh, program. Um, and tried to give a little bit of um, relief to small and medium-sized farmers. And it just never really took off. And of course, Vilsack uh, immediately, as soon as the he was done with the administration, um, you know, moved on to becoming a chief, you know, head of the, you know, the dairy, uh, the dairy industry's, um, you know, lobbying organization to try to, you know, foster more exports of dairy products from the United States, none of which has done anything to help the dairy industry in, in the U.S. or dairy farmers of any type, um, even the, you know, excepting to line the pockets of the DFA, as far as I can tell. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of Vilsack. I don't like Heidi Heitkamp. Um, and I haven't heard really of anybody else uh, particularly uh, inspiring as a pick for USDA. So my, my fingers are crossed on that. And, and like you said, I haven't heard anything about the EPA. Um, but what did they say about pesticides? Now, Obama banned some agrochemicals from use, um, but many of those bans were lifted by the Trump administration. Um, so which, which were the ones that were banned by, by Obama and, and what is now being allowed to use to, to be used? Um, and what do you think Biden will do about those? So there are kind of three main farm chemicals that we've been following. Um, one is chlorpyrifos. Um, the data on that indicates that when it's sprayed near schools or near places with children, um, it can um, have an impact on their development. Um, so yeah. the Obama administration sought to revoke the registration or effectively ban chlorpyrifos. Uh, the Trump administration reversed that ban. Um a couple years ago, I think. Um, the second one is neonicotinoids, which have been linked to bee colony collapse. 
Um, the Obama right. administration sought to ban those in many settings, um, but the Trump administration has tried to loosen restrictions on them. And then the third one has kind of the common issue since Obama left office. It's called dicamba. And it is um, really widespread. Um, it is um, part of um, bears. Um, GMO technology. And so they um, manufacture seeds for soybeans that can be sprayed with dicamba. And then when you spray dicamba on the soy, it kills everything but the bean itself. Um, the problem is that it's extremely volatile and um, it can drift from field to field and damage other crops. So um, the Ninth Circuit Court earlier this year effectively banned dicamba after environmental groups and farm groups sued um, to say basically that EPA didn't do enough safety analysis before approving it. Um, the EPA then re-registered the herbicide anyway, which angered a lot of plaintiffs groups, and we will have to see what will happen there. And, you know, I think... There's a lot that Biden can do to um, adjust the registrations on these or pesticides. Um, they've been so far on the back burner that I'm not sure he's actually been on the record talking about any of them. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what a new EPA might do um, for agrochemicals. Yeah. Well, yes. What, what, what we'll really see is just who is going to pay the most <laughs> to maintain the status quo. You know, I mean, the, we have got to reverse Citizens United. We have to get money out of politics. I mean, really, or just the entire world will be continued to be raped by these greedy bastards. But anyway, that, see, I'm allowed to say that because I'm not a real journalist. I'm just a fake journalist pretending to be real. But I read all this stuff and it makes my blood pressure rise like you cannot imagine. I mean, I'm just, I'm so enraged. <laughs> I spent the whole morning, we had a hard, just as a quick aside here, we had an incredible thunderstorm here. I'm in Southern Rhode Island. We had a thunderstorm that the thunder was, first of all, the lightning literally was like almost rainbow. It was so directly in front of my house or around my house. And the thunder made my house, which is enormous, shake to its foundations. That's how close it was. So that's how my day started. So that's, I've never, I've lived here for, you know, I mean, I'm 64 years old. I've never seen that happen before. Like that level of a storm in this period of the year never happens. Anyway, but I spent the whole subsequent morning because it was pouring with rain reading the news and just becoming increasingly incensed by what is happening to our, our country right now. And so, you know, end of my soapbox there. And I apologize to all of you for making you listen to my <laughs> to my rage rant. But um, anyway, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm not alone in the way I feel. And I know I'm not. And just the entire, you know, it's just it's just all so discouraging. Anyway, but the last thing I wanted to chat with you about before I let you go, Claire, was you um, in another piece, which was published, I guess, three or four days later than, or on the 20th, I believe it was, in the counter. Um, you had a piece about the loss of unemployment benefits for some, you know, 16 million American citizens. I, myself, am one of them. Um, talk about the impact this is going to have uh, on, for example, food stamps or uh, foreclosures or people becoming homeless. Were you able to, like, get any statistics about what, uh, you know, about projections on how this will 
uh, affect the nation's economy in the coming months. Yeah. So just to clarify what's happening here. um, So Congress has not been able to agree on another round of COVID-19 stimulus funds. And um, the the CARES Act um, basically set a timer on a lot of the unemployment programs. The really notorious $600 added benefit expired a while back in July, but there are other programs designed to just make unemployment last a little bit longer that have been helping folks stay afloat. And those are set to expire on December 26th, as are um, the federal eviction moratorium. A bunch of CARES Act provisions are going to end unless Congress is able to slip something into the appropriations bill or pass a new stimulus. And the Biden administration has said, if you do one thing, make it a stimulus before the inauguration, because these are going to be really, really hard months coming ahead. That said, I haven't seen much movement on another stimulus bill. So what we're watching and what I think lots of folks are watching is a couple of key indicators. There is a census pulse survey that comes out every two weeks that um, basically asks people how certain they are that they will be able to buy food for the next four weeks. Um, Those indicators have been pretty alarming recently. I think our reporting was that um, 40% of children live in families who said they were only moderately sure they would be able to buy food for the next four weeks. So the people who are losing unemployment are the folks that we will be looking to sign up for the SNAP benefit program. Um, and that's food stamps. Um, but what we don't know is, um, how easy it will be for people to sign up. Um, how well the program will be able to respond to a potential massive influx of new enrollees and whether or not um, in the very long term, the SNAP program will still be able to offer the expanded benefits that it has been offering since the start of the pandemic. So um, I was speaking with an expert last week and I said, you know, what safety net programs are available for people who run out of unemployment? And beyond SNAP and beyond a small cash assistance program for needy families, there really isn't much left. So that was the thing that really stuck with me. He was saying Mm -hmm. there's just not many other assistance programs left once you run out of unemployment benefits. Wow. Wow. And, you know, (laughs) that's when you're going to start to see the pitchforks and the torches. I mean, really, all those people... I I just I can't even imagine what this country is going to look like in the next three months. I really can't. I don't think it's going to be pretty. And I think, uh, you know, there's going to be this massive amount of homelessness and hunger that the likes of which we have not seen since the Great Depression in 1920s, you know, nine. It's just it's an unimaginable scenario. And yet it's all too imaginable suddenly. Thank you, Mr. Trump and Mitch McConnell, especially. Thank you, Mitch McConnell, for giving us this incredible nightmare scenario. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm at the end of my questions here. Do you want to spend a minute or two uh, promoting yourself and your publication shamelessly? Because I always encourage people to do that. 
<laughs> sure, we are um, the counter. We used to be called the New Food Economy. We're an independent nonprofit newsroom. Um, we just hired two new editors, so we're very excited to have some new faces on our team. Um, we have great. been covering the Trump administration for four years, and we plan to cover the Biden administration with the same level of rigor, um, though mm-hmm. the issues may change just a little bit. And, um, you know, when the agriculture secretary is announced tomorrow, you can look at our site for some sort of analysis. Oh, that sounds great. And do you, are you guys doing any like promos for Christmas or, you know, gift things or anything that people should know about in that sense? We are soliciting donations. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like, like all of us. (laughs) Yes. Um, we um, are absolutely accepting donations. It is our year-end um, fundraising drive. You can become a sustaining member for as little as a dollar a month, and um, we would really be happy to have you as part of our community. Yeah, so check it out, folks. For twelve bucks a year, you can be on the very in the very vanguard of information about what is going on in the agricultural community in this country. I really recommend the counter. Big fan of all of your all of your peeps there. Uh, read it religiously. Um, Claire, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time, and uh, I'll be seeing you again in the new year. Okay. Thanks so much for having me. We'll talk again soon. You betcha. Yes, sir. Take care. Thank you so much to uh, my sponsor and to my engineer, Jess, as always. Uh, See you next week, folks. We'll be talking more about what's happening in the coming year with the new administration. So stay tuned for that. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.